Awesome. So uh, it's 2020. Before COVID-19, something really, really important was supposed to happen this summer. Uh, can anybody tell me what event, huge, global event, was canceled? The Olympics, the 2020 Olympics. Now, hold on, I guess it wasn't canceled, um, but it was postponed till next summer, right? But we're going to be uh, taking a look at a couple of uh, awesome um, events from history, uh, the last few Olympics. Uh, Noah, would you be able to get the PowerPoint up for me? Awesome. Perfect. So, uh, Let's see, this was a number of years ago, but how many of you have seen the movie? This was 40 years ago. How many of you guys were alive? Oh, no, you weren't. How many counselors were alive 40 years ago for this? Do you guys rem- do you- Does anybody remember this, like, event happening? Okay, cool, awesome. You guys are old. Anyway, so it's, uh, it's 1980. Do- does anybody know the name of the movie that they made with this? Okay, uh, Hudson. Miracle on Ice, this is honestly one of the greatest sports movies of all time, right? Uh, So if you don't know, uh, this is about the USA hockey team, okay? They were going to be playing against the reigning world champions in in hockey. And uh, I I found an article uh, on this, uh, Miracle on Ice. This was a real thing that happened. And the story first needs a Goliath. And even a brief look at the Soviets, who the Americans were playing in the Olympics, just a brief look at them shows their might. They had won each of the previous four Olympic gold medals in hockey and 12 gold medals in the 16 world championships they played in between 1961 and 1979. The USSR also won all 12 matchups with the United States between 1960 and 1980. All 12 of them. So in the 1980 Olympics, uh, between 1960 and 1980, uh, the USSR outscored the Americans 117 to 26. Almost a 100-point difference. Even when the U.S. had NHL professional hockey players playing for it in the 1976 Canada Cup, it lost to the Soviets twice, outscored 9-2. Oh, and that doesn't even include the Soviets' infamous 10-3 blowout exhibition win to close out the 1980 U.S. team's pre-Olympic tour at Madison Square Garden just one week before the Olympic Games began. So this sets the stage for this American team who has to go against the Soviets. And do you guys know what happens in 1980? The Americans, for the first time in many, many, many years, defeat the Soviets, USA, right? That just makes me want to put on an American flag around my neck. And, uh, and so they defeated the Soviets. We love underdog stories, right? That, that's, why, that's why this movie is one of the greatest movies of all time. And uh, this is like the ultimate underdog story because the U.S. was not allowed to have, or none of the teams were allowed to have professional players, but the Soviets were loaded with professional players. And, uh, and so they had a way to get around it. But the Americans ended up winning it all. And, uh, and, and we love that story. 
However, just eight years prior, does anybody, uh, anybody remember what happened in 1972? Eight years prior to 1980, something very similar happened. Okay? You have the United States who has won the last four Olympics, have not ever lost a game. Okay? Best basketball players in the world had not lost a game. They come to the 1972 Olympics. They are, they're for sure going to win this Olympics. And uh, there's a lot of tension between the USSR and the United States. And uh, it's a close game. Here, here's, uh, here's what they said about the last uh, few moments of the game. There were three seconds left on the clock. Collins needed to make one free throw to tie and two to put the U.S. ahead. He sunk them both. The American supporters in the stands jumped joyously, repeatedly, almost victoriously. The comeback looked complete. But it wasn't. Not by a long chalk. The Soviets, who had tried to take a timeout in between Collins' free throws, a ploy the Americans maintain to this day was not allowed, restarted, and with their officials agitating on the sideline, were finally awarded a timeout with one second remaining. Again, the game appeared to be over, but then Dr. William Jones, <laughs> the British Secretary of FIBA, intervened, which was unusual, something the U.S. team maintained he had no authority to do. And he ordered the clock be reset to three seconds, and the game was restarted. Play resumed. The buzzer sounded as a Soviet long pass went way out of bounds. And again, the Americans jumped and whooped and hollered in victory. They believed they had won their seventh straight Olympic title. But as the clock was in the process of being reset, when play resumed, the floor had to be cleared again, and the three seconds were reinstated. The Americans frustrated. They considered pulling out. People say, why didn't you leave, says Collins. They were told that if they left, they would forfeit the game. Finally, the game got underway again. The Soviets got another chance. Three seconds left. Oh, sorry, I copied this twice. <laughs> Three seconds left, again. Uh, but the Americans, their emotions just torn up by everything they had gone, that had gone on, and fearful of conceding a technical foul, had no pressure on Ivan Edesheko on the inbound line, and his Hail Mary pass was caught by Alexander Belov, who brushed off Jim Forbes and Joyce and sank a layup for the Soviets to win the game. And this game, just if you watch this game, if you, uh, if you watch it on YouTube, this is like a deeply unsettling game, right? Because not only is this like the opposite of the underdog story, but it's like, hey, the, it was stolen from the Americans. Even to this day, the Americans have not claimed those second place medals because like the Soviets stole, stole that from us. And how horrible of a feeling it is, right, to feel like there's nothing you can do. You, you, you played your heart out. You made the free throws and yet the cards are stacked against you. You, you, you can't do anything. It's just taken from you, right? And we are actually going to see that today um, as we look uh, at our lesson. Uh, so we're going to begin uh, with a word of prayer, 
and, uh, and get started. Let's pray. God, thank you for junior boys. Thank you for the awesome week we're having and in uh, the lives that have already been touched. Uh, I pray, God, that um, you would lead me uh, to the words that you'd have for, for me to say and for the boys to hear. Um, help me to speak clearly, that my thoughts would be clear, and uh, most importantly, God, that uh, the gospel would be communicated and, and that you would reach down and call the hearts of these boys. We trust that in your hands, God, and, and we love you. Um, thank you for your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's turn to, uh, back to 1 Samuel, if you have your Bibles. Uh, we're in 1 Samuel 16 uh, as we uh, resume through the eyes of the shepherd. Uh, today, it's the unexpected conqueror. The unexpected conqueror. Um, Samuel, remember, came to Saul and he said, God, because you rejected God's word, he has rejected you as king, and now I'm going to choose another king who will be better than you. That's what he says. And what's interesting is God provides in unexpected ways. I know this is a little out of order. God provides in unexpected ways, and we see this. Uh, we see this in how God chose the next king. Um, I need uh, I need Tim O'Toole's cabin right here. Let's see. Can I have all of you guys come up except for whoever is the smallest? I need you to stay behind. Okay. So everybody, come up. Decide who's the smallest. And uh, all right, rest of you boys, come on up. All right. So. God says to Samuel, go to Bethlehem and go to the house of Jesse. Awesome. Okay, don't get too close to me. <laughs> so go ahead and line up right here on the stage. God says, go to Bethlehem and go to Jesse, and there I will show you who is to be the next king of Israel. Now, uh, Samuel was hesitant to go because he knew that Saul Saul would know that he's going somewhere. You know, he just said, hey, I'm going to go get another king. So I'm sure Saul was just like eyes on Samuel. So God says, okay, here's what you need to do. Go to Bethlehem, offer a sacrifice. And at that sacrifice, Jesse will be there. Invite Jesse to come to the sacrifice. And there, I'll reveal to you who the next king of Israel is going to be. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, and can you guys kind of act scared? So Samuel shows up. Ah, ah. Oh, yeah, you guys don't know how to be scared. Okay, so, it, so he comes to Bethlehem, and everybody's scared like, oh, no. If Saul sees that Samuel's here, he's going to send his men here and kill us all. Samuel said, no, I'm, here. I'm just here to offer sacrifice. Okay, so he, so he comes, everybody relax, okay, and, and he offers a sacrifice, and Samuel uh, is walking through, and here are the sons of Jesse, and he comes up to the best-looking, strong, oldest brother. He says, that's, that's him, that's the king, right? God says, no, that's, that's not the king. Oh, this is the best-looking, strongest, oldest one, isn't it? This has got to be him. Okay, all right. Uh, the second one, oh man, this guy is good looking, you know. Surely this is him, right? God says, no, it's not the second born either. 
okay? And it's almost like as you're reading the story, it's like, okay, is it, it's not this one. Who is it? We come to the thirdborn. Is it you? No. God moves over here, or Samuel moves over here. Okay, God, is this the anointed one? Is he going to be the king of Israel? No. Is he going to be the king of Israel? No. Is he going to be the king of Israel? There's no one left, right? And so Samuel says to Jesse, like, hey, God said that there's going to be somebody here that needs to be anointed, but he didn't pick any of your sons. Is there someone else? And Jesse kind of scratches his head. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess there's David, but he's probably a little dirt sitter, you know, just sitting on the ground, not, doing, not, not really doing anything. No, he's taking care of the sheep, right? He's a shepherd, and, and a very good shepherd. And, uh, and Jesse says, okay, my, my son is on the, out taking care of the sheep. That's the last one. And so I need uh, my last guy to come on up right here. Yep, come on up. And uh, the youngest, smallest guy comes up. Go ahead and stand right here. And uh, Samuel goes, okay, God, is, is this the next one that you've chosen for the nation of Israel? The youngest. Is this him? And God says, yes, it is him. It is going to be the youngest who's going to be the next king of Israel. Hey, thank you guys for helping. Go ahead and have a seat. Let's give them a hand. Thank you guys for helping. So what's interesting is God chose the youngest son. He didn't choose the oldest, strongest, maybe not even the best looking son. Uh, he chose to provide in an unexpected way. And so Samuel anoints David, which David would have recognized. Oh, wow, this is serious. And it says that the Holy Spirit came upon David from then on. Uh, remember, we talked yesterday about the anointing, how God will bestow or will give Holy Spirit empowerment to the leader of Israel, right? So he gives that power to David to rule. So then, God, what he says to Samuel is awesome, okay? Uh, Let's see here. Let me pull this up. Verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. When Samuel is wondering, okay, what's your criteria for uh, picking this one? Here's what he says. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Talking about the oldest brother. Man does not see what the Lord sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, or what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. So God looks at the heart, not appearance. So God provides in unexpected ways for the nation of Israel, okay? And so instead of picking another Saul who is head and shoulders above everybody else, he picks the youngest of a family. Such a big difference. All right. Our next point. Anybody know who? Uh, anybody know who this is? All right, this is okay. You guys know this is LeBron James, okay? And right now he plays for the Lakers. Uh, does anybody remember when he played for the Heat? Okay. Does anybody remember? This might be for the older people, but does anybody remember when he first went to the Heat? He the decision, right? 
and they go and they celebrate in Miami. And what did he say about winning championships? Remember what he said? He said, not one, not two, not three, not four. And he keeps going like, I'm going to deliver all of these championships to Miami, right? It's kind of like what Pastor Aaron said last night about the guy who said, hey, I'll give you 20 bucks if you climb the wall. The truth is, is uh, I did find another picture of LeBron. Uh, maybe you'll recognize it here. And uh, uh, yep, yep, it's true. Even, if, even though he didn't deliver it, that's, 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 what, I, that's what I think. Uh, unlike LeBron, God provides faithfully. So God made this promise, you remember yesterday in Exodus? He said, hey, I'm going to blot out the Amalekites. I'm going to have somebody someday who's going to come destroy the Amalekites. Saul failed that mission, remember? And then David is now, hey, this is a mission that's now going to be handed on to you. And not only that, God made a promise saying, hey, I'm going to provide you with a new king who's better than Saul. And although we don't know David super well yet in the story, we'll, come on, we'll go on to see that David really is a better king uh, than Saul. So uh, God supplied the Israelites with a new king who would then deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. Let's go ahead and uh, turn to chapter 17. Turn to chapter 17. God provides for our greatest need. This is a familiar story. Uh, this is a familiar chapter um, about David and Goliath. We, we know the story. Uh, it's, it's really been told to us like the miracle on ice story, right? Here you have this under, underdog, somebody who, you know, young warrior going against this great giant. However, I, uh, as you look at it from the perspective of the Israelites, it really feels a lot more like the 1972 Olympics. Here you have a warrior who is nine feet tall, has been a warrior since he was young, and he's asking for a one-on-one -on -one battle. How unfair is that? Totally rigged. No, no one in all of Israel was ready to fight him. So let's go ahead and read this together. Uh, Starting in verse 1, the Philistines gathered their forces for war in Judah and camped between uh, Soko and Azekah in Ephes Demim. <laughs> Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. Then they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. So the Israelites are, hey, we're going to fight you like normal, normal battle engagements. The Philistines were standing on the other hill. So, you know, you have the valley here. You guys can be the good guys today. So the Israelites are all over here on this side ready to battle. You guys are even kind of in your formation. So just imagine that you're, you're in your formation. And you guys are the Philistines. Sorry. But you do, have a, you do have a big warrior. Okay? So they're divided. And there's the valley coming right down the middle. Verse 4. Then a champion named Goliath. From Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet tall, nine inches, 
Nine feet, nine inches tall. And he wore bronze helmet, bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. It would probably take three junior boyers <laughs> to weigh 125 pounds. That's how much his armor weighed. His, uh, there, there was bronze armor on his shins, and the bronze sword was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, huge beam. And the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. What I think Samuel is trying to communicate here, I mean, he goes into great detail like on the armor he's wearing, right? What he's communicating is like, look, this is going to be impossible. He, he is going detail by detail by detail, not just to be meticulous, but to show really what the Israelites were up against. That this is not just an average warrior. This is not somebody that they were used to facing. This was a pretty unusual uh, almost insurmountable enemy uh, for the Israelites. And he stood and shouted, verse 8, to the Israelite battle formation. Why do you come out and line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Goliath was terrifying. I think we often give the Israelites a pretty hard time about not having courage. Uh, this was not a battle that appeared to be winnable. <clears throat> So we know how the story goes on from there. David is sent out to bring food to his brothers, right? And Goliath cries out again. It's been 40 days, by the way. 40 days of Goliath doing this. The Israelites are so scared, they've been frozen for over a month, right? David comes and he hears this. He says, who is this Philistine that he's saying this about our God? Who is this? They, they explained to him, well, this is Goliath, don't you see? He's got the bronze armor, 125 pounds. He's got a shield bearer, and he's nine feet tall. <laughs> he's a monster. And David says, all right, what happens to the person who kills him? What are, what's going on? What happens? So they explained to him, uh, you know, Saul, Saul, will, your family won't have to pay taxes. You know, I'm sure they would have given him a ton of money. He was even going to be given the, a wife from Saul's daughters, basically giving him access to the throne. And so David goes to Saul and says, hey, I, I'll fight Goliath. I'll fight Goliath. And Saul puts his armor on, and, and it's too big. And so, so David takes it off. He says, no, I'll, I'll just go with my sling. And he steps out into this valley to Goliath. And you have all of the Israelites over here who have been frozen for 40 days, helpless, without courage, terrified, because of this insurmountable giant. And so he says, the Philistine came closer in verse 41. 
He came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just youth, healthy, and handsome. He's just a young guy. It's kind of like, why would you send this guy to me? Once again, God provides in unexpected ways. He despised him. So he, then he says, he said to David, verse 43, Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. This is awesome. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a dagger, spear, and sword. But I come against you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel's armies. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, cut off your head, give the corpses, uh, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and to the creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, the true God. And this whole assembly will know that is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. For 40 days, the Israelites were paralyzed by fear. Goliath seemed insurmountable to them. But David came and conquered. What's what, one thing that I just really want to clarify for you, what I'm not saying and what, what I don't think Scripture is saying is, hey, because David was so courageous, he was able to defeat the giant. I, I, really don't, I really don't see that here. I don't think David gives credit to himself and his courage in this battle. Okay? I'm not saying that, hey, if you are courageous, you can conquer. Right? Really, we're more like the 1972 Olympics where the cards are absolutely stacked against us. There's not a chance. Not a chance. Instead, God used David to defeat this Goliath for the nation of Israel. Does that make sense? God did not provide for Israel by giving them courage. He provided for them by giving them a conqueror, an unexpected conqueror, because God is faithful to provide for your greatest need. It seems minor, but God didn't give Goliath over to David because of his courage and valor. Rather, David was courageous because he knew that God had already provided the victory. Look again, he says that. He says, it's not by sword or spear that, I'm that you are going to be struck down. He said, it is by the name of God. He is the one who's going to give the victory. The Israelite armies should have had the courage to fight against Goliath. Someone else maybe could have defeated Goliath. But because no one would, or maybe even possibly could, God provided for them an unlikely shepherd to defeat the giant. So as we see God in Israel's past as being faithful, uh, providing in unexpected ways, providing for their greatest need, we can really learn something about God in that he is faithful to us in providing for us. 
He provided in an unexpected way, and it provides for our greatest need through Jesus Christ. Our insurmountable giant is called sin. Unlike the armies of Israel, we truly are totally helpless. Standing on the hillside, standing, us standing on the hillside, our sin in the valley. And instead of crying out, you know, I defy your God, he actually really, the sin speaks truth. You stand condemned, helpless. There's nothing, there's nothing you can do. You're unrighteous, unworthy, and full of sin. You are dead in your trespasses and sin in which you walk according to the ways of the, Lord, uh, ways of the world. You live in disobedience. Then from the crowd steps an unexpected Savior. He was not unexpected because we didn't know he was coming. The prophets told, told us that he was coming. He's the unexpected Savior because he saved us in an unexpected way. Instead of slaying the giant that accuses us of our sin, he stands in our place. Instead of inflicting suffering, he bore the suffering that we deserve. Instead of carrying a sword, this unexpected Savior carries the cross, and he dies. He dies the death that we rightfully deserve. Romans 5, 6, and 9, I think, says this really well, talking about our need and the timing of our unexpected, faithful Savior. It says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, his love for you and for me, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore now we've been justified by his blood, much more will be saved from the wrath of God. This giant has been conquered by the timely coming of our Savior. So let me be clear. Like Saul, we have sinned and it has separated us from God. But God has faithfully provided for our greatest need through Jesus' death on the cross. He took our place, bore our sin on the cross. He took the punishment that we deserve so that we could be made right with God. As Christ defeated that giant by dying for our sin, like the Israelites, we can run onto the battlefield in victory. Not because he has given you courage, but because he's won the battle by a great conqueror. All you have to do is accept the free gift of salvation from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Lord, we desperately need you. We, like Saul, have been separated from you by our sin, and it rightly condemns us. We deserve judgment, but instead you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. We're so thankful for that, God. I pray that there's a junior boy here today who has not put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, that they would do that today, even this morning, and uh, soften our hearts, God. God, for those who have put their trust in you, you've given them victory over sin and death, and we praise you for that. That is awesome, God. We praise you for that. 
we love you. Thank you for what you've done. And uh, we say all this in Jesus' name. Amen.